Howdy listeners, this is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio, talking to you coast to coast, from the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. Well, we've had the election, kind of. I mean, uh, you know, usually results come from an election, but that seems to not be the case over the last several election cycles, including this one. We're going to be talking about that today. In fact, I'm going to kind of depart from my age-old M.O., which is the historical story and then the rest of the story. And there's plenty of the rest of the story in this show. But it's going to be contemporary events. In fact, the events of basically the last 72 hours, give or take, depending upon which day you are listening to this show, which AM station you are on around the country, or whether you're on podcast on one of the platforms. And I'm going to have a heart-to-heart talk with you, because this is really, really big stuff. I'm not going to be going over all the returns and, you know, the fact that Kerry Lake is catching up and may surpass and Laxalt is ahead. and uh, You know all that stuff. I'm sure most of you have been following this almost and maybe as avidly as I have. No, I'm going to talk to you about what this election means, all its various tangents, and what it means for the future because there were some really big things that were decided by this election, no matter how these last races come out. And... These big things compel us to take certain actions. Compel, not promote, not suggest, but compel us to take certain actions. And hopefully, by the time you hear this show, we'll know if we have the House of Representatives or not. And if we do, it compels certain actions on the part of the Republicans. Because everything is tied together. The actions that we have to take individually for our families, depending upon where we live, what state we're in, what we think the future of this country is, and the actions that the Republicans have to take to kind of, should we say, guarantee the safety of all those things which matter to us individually, are all intertwined. First, we're going to start with our founder's quote. You know, coming out of the Constitutional Convention, when that was written back there in 1787, there was a woman who asked Ben Franklin, I'm sure you've heard the story, but it's so apropos for this show, I'm going to repeat it, and said, so do we have a king or do we have a whatever? And Ben Franklin looked at her and said, no, ma'am, we have given you a republic if you can keep it. Well, we are at that point, folks. We have a republic that's sadly beleaguered under attack. It's had several of its many legs cut out from under it quite intentionally. Its spine, its constitution, is under relentless attack. Its predicate, faith, family, the constitution, individual freedom, is under constant and relentless attack. None of it an accident. None of this is happen chance. And this election may give us an opportunity, as disappointing as it was. I mean, let's face it. This was no red wave. This was no red tsunami. This was, you know, kind of a a reverse toilet flush. How's that? Kind of picture that if you can. It's still better than nothing, and it still gives us something to work with. But if you go back to my historical stories, and I've talked about this, the problems with Republicans is that they have never seized the advantages that they have been given. Democrats, on the other hand, seize every advantage (laughs) or take every advantage that they possibly can at any time and relentlessly. We need to start doing that, and we need to start with this election. So my little ranch story for today I'm not sure it's really a story, but you know when you live in the middle of nowhere and it's a two hours round trip to town to get a screw because you forgot it, you learn to have duplicates. You learn to have two screws. (laughs) I'm I'm being facetious. You learn to have two bobcat machines. You learn to have two machines that can move hay. 
because invariably something always goes wrong with one. And that goes down to the PPPPP premise. Prior planning prevents poor performance. Unless, of course, your poor performance is pre-intended for a specific reason. And I think you'll see this theme of this little ranch story, this ranch anecdote, if you will, kind of play through what I'm about to share with you in this, we'll call it post-mortem election. So the only poll that matters, I told you this when I gave you the history of polling several weeks ago on the rightsideradio.com if you didn't hear it. That poll is the poll that is created by people pulling the lever in the voting booth. And we could talk many ways and for a long time about why the red wave didn't materialize, why it was more like a whimper than a bang. But, you know, it's still a whimper, and we can take it, and we can use it. And I think the reasons and the lessons are numerous. Number one, you know, it's never wise to tell the enemy what you plan to do with an advantage if they give you one. And Republicans running around talking about impeachment and talking about investigations and talking about this, that, and the other is counterproductive because it panics the side that could get impeached or investigated, particularly when they're, they are so dirty in all sorts of respects. And they pull out the plugs. They kind of figured there's nothing to lose. I can cheat and get caught or I can cheat and get away with it. And in terms of investigations, why would you want to forewarn somebody of an investigation you plan to undertake so that they can hide, so they can think about it, so they can change their story, so they can come up with their excuses? And then finally, what you do is you motivate them or you motivate their useful idiot followers to go vote when maybe they wouldn't have voted to begin with. So that's number one. Number two, there was way too much hoopla and rhetoric about the red wave and the red tsunami. Once again, all you do is motivate your enemy to turn out their vote or to motivate an enemy voter to actually go down to the polls when maybe originally they hadn't planned to. And then number three, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show because it's one of the things that came out of this election, clear as a bell to me, and I think to others. And that is you had the specter of Trump. And I'm a Trump fan. I like Donald Trump. I mean, sometimes I just kind of roll my eyes at the ceiling as to his timing and as to what he is saying relative to a timing because it makes no sense. It's counterproductive. But I like Donald Trump. But Donald Trump, in hinting, even hinting, that he was going to make the announcement of a run in 2024, stirred up and motivated all that anti-Trump sentiment and gave the Democratic Marxists ammunition. Whether the ammunition is justified or not is not what I'm talking about. This is about winning elections. And when he threw that barb at DeSantis a few days before the election, called him desanctimonious or whatever he called him, I mean, improper time and place to do that, heading into a big midterm. And then, of course, there was the abortion issue, you know, and the Democrats are very, very, very good at tying in issues to get their people to the polls in close states. Take a look at how Barack Obama flipped Colorado from solid red to solid blue. Marijuana. That was the thing that got that blue ball rolling in Colorado. That was the thing that got people to the polls which, in an election which originally started turning that state back there in 2008 when Obama was first elected. And they did the same thing here in a number of states with abortion. Did you know that in California, Michigan, which was a battleground state, and Vermont, California, Vermont, not so much, obviously, they all had on the ballot and they passed the broadest abortion laws in the country. Now, 
you would think a thinking person on the left would go, gee, they've been telling me that the Supreme Court ruling, the Dobbs decision, outlawed abortion. But here we have a ballot proposal amending the Constitution of my state that I'm voting in, which is going to allow abortions. Not only allow abortions, folks, but the broadest possible abortion laws in the country and all constitutional amendments, which created a constitutional right you have to think about this because it's you know it's one of those it's one of those paradoxes you have a constitutional right to take the life of somebody i mean you just have to think about it but it's a constitutional right in those states to kill preborn infants up to the moment of birth and that's how they got people to the polls and the democrats skillfully played this ridiculous talk about a red wave and red tsunami that everybody was jumping up and down about I mean, it even got me excited. Gee, maybe this could happen. Although, in my heart of hearts, and I told you this in my shows, I don't count on it. Something's going to go wrong. Remember my rant stories from those shows. But just when everything looks idyllic, poof, there it goes. And how clever are the Democratic Marxists, right? They're jumping up and down, telling all their people, it's going to be a huge red wave, you got to get out and vote. And then, of course, knowing full well it wasn't going to be a huge red wave, they're now using it to say, oh, the Republicans failed. When in reality, the Republicans didn't fail. I mean, we don't know how the Senate's going to play out. Once again, depending upon when you listen to this show, what AM station you are on around the country or podcast, you know, perhaps the Republicans did flip the Senate. Or perhaps it's going to come down to the runoff in Georgia. Or perhaps they didn't get it done. I don't know. Nobody knows. Because states can't count votes quite intentionally. We're going to be talking about that here in just a moment, too. But what the Republicans did in jumping, and all the conservative so-called pundits, the talking heads, in jumping up and down on this red wave, red tsunami, all that crud, is number one, they probably got some Republican voters who went, ah, you know, it's snowy, it's nasty, the roads are slick, or it's hot, or, you know, the wheel fell off my car, whatever it is. And they said, oh, well, you know, my one vote isn't going to matter because it's going to be a tsunami. And then they got the Democrats the lever to get their people out. If you don't come out, it's going to be a red tsunami. And, you know, like that one crackpot historian said, you've probably heard the quote on radio or TV, and we'll lose democracy and they're going to come take our children and kill them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was really that ridiculous. But now they get to use it and say, oh, well, this was a big defeat for the Republicans. None of this bodes well. You know, if you've ever read The Art of War, you don't tell your enemy what you're going to do unless you have a purpose for telling them, which could be subterfuge, it could be intentionally misleading, or it could be to put them on notice and to distract them from something else. I mean, it was very childish, shall we say, of the conservative side of things to jump up and down in this supposed red wave, and it didn't do them any good. So I think all these factors played into what's going on. Or what's not going on, as the case may be, if you're in Arizona, Nevada, or Pennsylvania. One thing which absolutely is clear from these elections, actually, a number of things. Red states are getting redder. I have told you that for a year and a half. You know, all the people have been wringing their hands saying, oh, this exodus from the blue states, it's going to turn red states blue. No, no, no. I have told you from day one, red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer. And in some ways, that's great. You saw what happened in Florida and Texas. Those were purple states four to eight years ago. They are solid red, which is terrific. They're also a hell of a lot of electoral votes. Which brings us to, you know, a problem in this mass exodus from blue states to red states. If you get to the point where there are no swing states, they are only solid blue or solid red, 
given the fact that New York and California are solid blue and is, you know, basically 40% of the electoral votes that you need right off the bat in any election, this exodus could result in a Republican president never getting elected again. And there's the what ifs, right? What if there hadn't been the Dobbs decision or it come after the election? What effect would that have had? What if, you know, Trump didn't tease, you know, couldn't resist teasing his potential announcement of a 2024 run? But one of the things that definitely came out of this election, in addition to red getting redder and blue getting bluer, is machines cannot be trusted. I've been jumping up and down on this for years. I've been screaming about it since 2020. And here we are again. These machines are nothing but a pathogenic pathway to corruption. It is a means of entry into the electoral system by foreign enemies and domestic enemies. There's only one way to solve this problem with the machines. And we saw it, and we're going to go over a few of these problems, quote-unquote, that arose in Nevada and other places. I mean, you've heard about Arizona. Wait till you hear about how many places had machine problems in Republican precincts, of course, to try and delay the vote, persuade voters not to wait in line, to leave, whatever. So why would you use a system that is subject to domestic, foreign, or administrative interference? I mean, would you do that with your tax returns? I don't think so. And then, of course, we have the mail-in ballots. Gee, I wonder why Washington, Oregon, and California, the blue coast, I wonder why they've gone to all mail-in ballots. I wonder why in 2020 and this year, there's the excuse of, well, we haven't counted all the mail-in ballots, so we can't give you vote totals. We can't give you results. I wonder why the push by Democrats across the board to go more and more mail-in. Let me tell you this. It is not for the sanctity <laughs> it is not for the sanctity of elections or the ease of voting. No, no, no. Not even close. Another thing we learned from this election, if you have principles, you stick to them. I mean, you use clever delivery. You use non-obtrusive language. You don't have to be nasty, but you beat your chest and say, this is what I believe and this is what I stand for. Take a look at Ron DeSantis down in Florida. Take a look at Abbott in Texas. Take a look at the Virginia races. Every candidate, with almost without exception, that stood on their principles, either won or lost by the narrowest of margins, probably because of some of these other factors that we're discussing. The days of mealy-mouth, weak-kneed rhinos and Republicans, or conservatives as they call themselves, who can't stand on their own two feet, espouse their ideals, and stick with them relentlessly, as relentlessly as the left sticks with their misbeguided ideology, is over if you want to win elections. The other thing that came out of this election is that the rhinos are slowly being weeded out of the Republican Party. Cheney endorsed five different Democratic and one rhino candidate in these elections. Five of the six lost. We don't know about Murkowski in Alaska yet. Eight of the ten Republican congressmen who voted for impeachment are gone. The only ones who survived are the one Republican congressman in Oregon and the one Republican congressman, I believe, in Washington. And the other thing that we learned absolutely positively is that the fraud that we saw in 2020 is not cleaned up, not cleaned up by a long shot. The frauds that we saw in 2020 are continuing but lessened. However, the Democrats being resourceful and being clever and not revealing their plans, unlike the Republicans 
had a whole different twist on how to screw up these elections in this go-around. Which, by the way, were predicated on the machines, but not always on, should we say, improper tabulation of votes, or spikes in votes, or connections to the internet, or who knows what other games were played. No, they had a whole different M.O., which we're going to be talking about. And as for you blue trolls listening in going, oh, he's an election denier. No, I am not an election denier. I am an election believer. Elections are the essence of the republic that Franklin and the founders gave us. But I am also an election fraud believer, and it needs to be stamped out. Now, assuming the House does go to the Republicans, even more so if the Republicans take the Senate by one vote, this election is going to have certain absolute effects. Ukraine, you know, you might see a settlement in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia, believe it or not. In fact, the Ukrainians are crafty, but plus, you know, I mean, the WEF is in there up to their eyeballs. And the Ukrainians understand shifting political winds. When it looked like there was going to be a red wave, when it looked like the Republicans were going to take the House, and hopefully they still will, and take the Senate. Suddenly, gee, after eight months, hundreds of thousands of deaths, war-torn countries, you name it. Zelensky over there, a disciple of Klaus Schwab, has now said, believe it or not, (laughs) that his government is prepared to discuss adopting a neutral status as a part of a peace deal with Russia. Hmm, this was a guy who said, we'll never surrender, blah, 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 blah. And the two countries are set to resume negotiations, yeah, actually kind of as this show is airing, in Turkey. Quote, security guarantees the neutrality, non-nuclear status of our state. We are ready to go for it. This is the most important point. Huh, that's Zelensky's quote. Gee, so, you know, here is an advantage. We may have avoided, for now, nuclear war or World War III just by the hint of the shift of political power. It also tells you for sure who is the warmonger party and who is not, and what the rest of the world correctly perceives to be the case in that regard. Buried, of course, much to the mainstream media's delight, because they hate Netanyahu, Netanyahu came back to power in Israel. Remarkable. Which gives the Mideast a whole different hawkish stance, particularly with Iran running around rumoring to be attacking Americans in Saudi Arabia and, and Kuwait, etc. We talked about this last week, the powder kegs around the world. And since the House controls the purse strings, I think it's safe to say that money printing will come to an end. Trillion dollar bills will come to an end. And some of these outrageous expenditures, like, you know, 87,000 new armed IRS agents who are ready, willing, and able to use deadly force, that's their advertisements for the jobs, that will come to an end. Because if Congress doesn't approve it, you don't get the money. And as part of that process, and this goes into the next thing we're going to talk about, gee, maybe the House of Representatives, because there hasn't been one since, I think, George Bush, could put together a budget. You know, the federal government hates budgets. Because then you know what they're spending the money on and if they're overspending. And because people get to have a say before the budget is adopted. What do you mean you're going to spend $5 million on how fast snails crawl? So maybe that's something that could happen. And by the way, to the extent you stop the spending and to the extent you stop the money printing, inflation goes down. I think a Republican House 
is going to empower the states to do their own oil and gas exploration, as a number of them, the red states, are exploring right now. No pun intended. I think it's going to empower the border states. Nevada, which saw Republican governor elected, great. That was a turnover for the Democrats. Arizona, hopefully Kerry Lake will be elected there. And Texas, you know, Abbott is already on the case, so to speak. It'll empower the border states to declare invasions and take control of the border, which the federal government obviously is not going to do. And which the House, even if the Senate comes our way, they can pass all the bills in the world, but it's not going to happen because the folks behind Biden who put the pen in his feeble old hands and tell him to sign this piece of paper right here where the X is, they're not going to let it happen. But one of the things that the House can do If they don't get bogged down in a bunch of mindless Republican crap, you know, the investigations and the impeachments and all this kind of stuff, the first thing they have to do is they have to hit the ground running with a legislative agenda. Listen, if we don't get the Senate, then it can go to the Senate and the Democrats in the Senate can block it. The Democrats in the Senate can filibuster it, but it's going to be clear to the public what is going on. Who is blocking things which benefit everyday Americans? Who is blocking things which increase rather than decrease individual and personal freedoms? And if we get the Senate by a vote, then it can be passed by the Senate and it can go to Biden, where his masters can have him veto it. And once again, the public will see it. Even though mainstream media is going to do its best to kind of cover it up, that word will get out. They can send up bills on guns, education, all sorts of things, fiscal policy, budgets, and let the Democrats knock them down each and every time. I mean, obviously, a bill that's passed by the House with a Democratic president, particularly President Cadaver and Obama's third term, has no chance of going anywhere. But boy, what a great chance to use your ideas, to get your ideas out in front of the American public, to put mainstream media in a box, and to show the public exactly who and what the Democrats are and where they stand on key fundamental issues to everybody in this country other than the elites. And then when that legislative process is rolling, I mean, they should be sending a bill up there every week, every two weeks, whatever. Time is not our ally. 2024 is not far away. Then they can start judicious, pre-planned, well-thought-out investigations of a limited nature. And I don't mean the investigation is limited. That should be in-depth. I'm talking about the numbers of investigations and the subjects of the investigations. If you have 20 investigations going on, people are just going to lose sight of it. They're going to yawn. They're going to go, oh, God, it's more of the same. Pick a few really big ones where you want to get a message across to the public. Pick, for instance, the role that agencies and people in the agencies, like our friend Fauci, and Big Pharma played in the COVID scamdemic. Let Americans think about what they lost in money, what they lost in work, the lockdowns, the people who died, the withheld medications, the hospital protocols where hospitals got paid. I mean, right down the list. You could start an investigation on immigration. What is really pulling these immigrants to the country? What are they really getting from the U.S. taxpayer when they walk across the border? And what is the real cost, both human and money? How about hauling the media in for a little investigation? The media and big tech. You know what? I'd love to know exactly who owns, I mean, I've talked about it with you in the historical, the Robber Baron series, if you didn't listen to it, who owns corporate media? Americans need to know. Who funds it? How does corporate media 
30 different stations and the press secretary for President Cadaver, how do they all get the same talking points at the exact same moment on the exact same day down to the exact same words? How does that happen? Where is that coming from? And of course, they can also investigate the collusion, the treasonous collusion of big tech and government in stamping out First Amendment rights of half the country. I mean, those would be a couple of really great investigations. And if you limit them and you pick these really big subjects that touch everybody's life, you know, whether or not you can talk without fear of being in jail, whether or not you control the health stuff of your own body, whether or not you are being lied to by a media you're supposed to trust that the founders empowered to bring you the news, that's both sides, how corrupt our health services agencies are, and who's pulling the strings. These are big things that affect everybody's life. And I know some of you are going to jump up and down. What about Biden's laptop and Hunter's this and Hunter's that? You know what, folks? We have time for that. First of all, the statute of limitations has run on some of this stuff anyway, quite intentionally. And number two, yeah, you know, Hunter's laptop is a big deal. Joe Biden's corruption and his beholding to red China is a big deal. But people kind of know that that's out there. And people will look at that differently than these higher level investigations. There's time for that. We can get onto that stuff because Hunter's continuing to commit crimes. I mean, this is an ongoing crime syndicate. It's not like he did something bad five years ago and the time is about to expire. And in 2024, hopefully with a Republican president, we can get into that sordid stuff. This is not the time for that kind of squat. Because then you look like you're just, it's kind of a retribution look. Well, you did this to Trump, so we're going to do this to you. you. You don't want to go there. And if these investigations get legs, and if they get traction, and if the mainstream media really can't ignore them other than to try to poo-poo them, then maybe, maybe, depending upon the political winds, you go for a few impeachments. And I don't mean of the big guy, because everybody kind of knows what he is, even those who don't want to admit it. I'm talking about like Mayorkas, treasonous red Chinese and globalist pigeon that runs DHS. How about our illustrious head, Rochelle, of HHS? I mean, what did HHS have to do with the CDC and NIH and all that stuff and all the COVID fraud? These are just a few of the openings that taking the House, assuming we do, has given us. And we should do it immediately. I mean, we should hit the ground running. Jim Jordan. I mean, there's five or six Republicans that would be gangbusters gangbuster speakers of the houses that would get this stuff done, that would fast track it, that are smart, that understand the order in which this needs to be done and how overreach will kill the process. In this way, it's going to be a real big test, real fast, of McCarthy as the House leader. I'm not a fan of Kevin McCarthy. He reminds me way too much of Paul Ryan, whom I'm absolutely not a fan of, or Boehner, who I made me wretch. But maybe McCarthy will rise to the occasion. And if he doesn't, then without ado and without pomp and circumstance, the Republicans need to replace him. But let's talk about, we've kind of talked about the background. We've talked about the opportunities. Let's talk about the consequences of this election. Yes, it's presented us with opportunities, and I've gone over that with you. Yes, it's pointed out certain undeniable facts, which I've gone over with you. But the really big picture consequences that I take away from this election, this never-ending election, is number one, the acceleration. This election is going to accelerate that red state in migration and blue state out migration. 
I mean, people's fight or flight syndrome is going to be triggered by what happened in their respective states. If you're in Pennsylvania, you may be thinking, wow, my state is toast. I mean, Fetterman got elected. And whether or not you think there was fraud there, I do. You may not. Obviously, somebody voted for Fetterman. And then you're going to be faced with a decision. All of you listening to me in blue states are going to be faced with a decision. Are you going to stay and fight for your state? Or are you going to flee? And I'm not saying what's good or bad or indifferent. That's up to each individual situation. There will be different people who make different choices based on what's right for them, the strength of their convictions, their family situation, their financial situation, you name it. But this election and what's happened in some of these areas, like Pennsylvania, like New Hampshire, like Washington, like Oregon, are going to say, you know, I gave it a shot and I'm out of here. I'm headed to Wyoming or the Dakotas or Nebraska or Utah or Idaho or Texas or Florida or the Southeast. And the results of all those collective decisions by all these people in the blue states are going to have effects down the road. I talked a little bit about the potential effect on the Electoral College. And it's going to have an effect on whether or not those blue states ever get their Election Integrity Act together, which is key to the continued longevity of this republic. Remember what Franklin said, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. The last thing you want to do is federalize elections. But in the end, it's the state legislatures. Remember, Section 2, 2.2, Constitution of the United States. The state legislatures alone have the power to make election laws. And if you've left your state, you're not going to have any say in what that state legislature who's in your rearview mirror is going to be doing about fixing the mess that still exists, unfortunately, in virtually all the swing states. The other thing I got out of this election is that Trump's day is over. He is in the sunset of his public political career. DeSantis is at the dawn of his. And once again, I like Trump. And Trump did incredibly good things for this country. His policies rocked. His delivery of the policies probably could have been better. His castigation of enemies of the policies certainly could have been better. And his timing, per the few examples I gave you just in the last week, could usually be better. But Trump is the one that opened the eyes of tens of millions of Americans. And for that, he deserves historical acclaim. He may have, as, as abrasive as his personality can be at times, as clever as some of his stuff is and as unthinking as other actions of his are, he will go down as a great president, assuming, in the words of Ben Franklin, we keep the republic. But every dog has their day, and it is now Ron DeSantis' turn. And I think he is every bit like Trump, but with a far smoother delivery and a far more liked universal persona. Not that that 30% that's on the left, left, left is ever going to like Ron DeSantis. I'm not saying that. But Ron DeSantis is unlikely to turn off that suburban housewife in the suburbs around the big cities and all these populous states that mean election or no election for conservative causes. And the third thing that this election absolutely underlines is that the problem with election integrity is not handled in a number of states, primarily the swing states. I mean, there are just scores of fraud articles out there. I've listed them. I don't have time to go over all of them. I'm just going to give you a quick sampling. But you can read these in depth, and I suggest you do, under electionfraudontherightsideradio.com. Bunch of articles. You can 
read them, you can decide, you can check out the sources, you can do whatever you'd like. But let me give you just a couple of examples. So like the day before the election, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is different than the civil courts in Texas, kind of an odd setup in that state, they ruled that the Attorney General of Texas cannot prosecute election fraud. Hmm, what did they think was going to be happening? That only district attorneys can do that. It just so happens that Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas, believes that that court has been infiltrated by Soros money. Well, Texas, even Texas, in Houston and in Austin and in some of the other blue areas of Texas, have Soros, I'll call him appointed, he paid for their, you know, he paid millions of dollars to get him elected, have Soros DAs. They're not going to prosecute election fraud. That was dropped on Texas the day before the election, which basically says, and by the way, Texas had 900, at the state level, had 900 pending cases of election fraud. I mean, they've convicted hundreds of people down there since 2020 that they can no longer pursue in Maricopa County. You've heard the problem. You heard it first thing. I mean, I my heart sank when, like, the first thing in the morning you hear that the tabulation machines, all of the machines, aren't working at these precincts. And, you know, 20% of them are down and there's long lines and people are being told to vote elsewhere. I mean, you heard all that stuff, right? Now, it just so happens that it only happened in Republican precincts. No Democratic precincts. Mm-mm-mm. I got texts from people, and this is anecdotal, but these are real people who texted me. They tried to vote 12 different times in Arizona during the election day. They finally, all of them, finally got their ballot taken somewhere. But what American should have to attempt 12 times to file their ballot, to cast their vote? You know, it's the same thing with the left as always. What they accuse you of is what they are doing. You know, all the clamor, all the jumping up and down, voter suppression. The voter suppression is of the Republicans by the Democrats. And folks, that's the one you heard about, Maricopa County. Let me tell you, just as a few other examples, machines were down in the Republican districts in Mercer County, New Jersey. Oh, really? And they were full of quote-unquote mishaps in Harris County, Texas, you know, Houston, and in Chesterfield County, Virginia, where we lost two very close congressional races, I might add, and in Bell County, Texas, and in Suffolk County, New York, you know, Lee Zeldin's home county, and then in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, very Republican county, they ran out of paper, huh, all 44 polling locations in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, all ran out of paper at the same time. Sorry, we can't give you a ballot. We don't have any paper. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no coincidences. Since the Democrats knew we were on, at least in part, to their manipulation of the tabulation and of the votes, etc., that are run through the machines, they, without telling us in advance, unlike the Republicans, came up with a whole new strategy. Hey, we won't switch the votes. We'll just make sure they don't vote. They can't vote. So you see, folks, fraud can take many forms. It can take the form of suppression, prevention, vote switching, ballot harvesting, fraudulent mail-in votes, and, of course, the machines, subject to the whims of whatever player on the planet wants to get into them and mucky-muck around. Next week, I'm going to have some very firm and very detailed plans for you on how we can correct this that you'll need to bring to your state legislatures. And next week, I'm going to be telling you about all the things, assuming we get the House, all the things that just 
by a few votes because of the Republican mistakes, what controlling the House of Representatives will do to stop impending doom day items coming your way, like digital currency and non-revocation of the 230 exemption, a legal exemption for big tech in censoring and all sorts of things. But right now, let's do an attenuated rat-a-tat-tat on some things that you really need to know, and this is going to be quick. Once again, the rat-a-tat-tat articles, you can read them in full, rat-a-tat-tat, homepage, on the right side, radio.com. I told you, folks, that there was going to be zillions of lawsuits for trillions of dollars headed the way of the government, Big Pharma, the fraudsters, Fauci, and the rest, and you know, it's begun. Over the last several months, 1,200 lawsuits have been filed, including a wave of litigation against employers that implemented COVID-19 vaccination requirements. There's another 700 lawsuits that have been filed as of September 1, I don't know what they are today, that have challenged vaccine mandates imposed by employers, both public and private. And you know, the courts are coming our way. And coupled with the unfortunate science which is emerging on the effects of COVID, the effects of COVID lockdowns, which were (laughs) unconstitutional and illegal to begin with, and the effects of the injections, you're going to see this amount absolutely grow exponentially. That's one of the reasons in our next little rat-a-tat-tat that suddenly left-wing Democrats are saying, you know, we should forgive and forget this COVID thing. We really don't know what happened. And, you know, we were just reacting. We were just worried about the public health, welfare, and safety. Nonsense. Do not forgive. Do not comply. Let's go after them. Let's make them pay for their treasonous, anti-human activities. And in another uh, rat-a-tat-tat, which should make you grin, you know what ESG is, right? Environmental, social, and governance movement in the woke corporate crowd, led by BlackRock. Go back to my robber baron story on the rightsideradio.com and listen to that history. Well, it seems that BlackRock shares are falling like a rock because states, non-woke states, are pulling hundreds of millions out of the fund. They're down roughly 20% and still sinking. We're going to talk more about ESG in the coming weeks because it's part of the whole oh, messaging, if you will, from the government, big tech, media, and the woke corporate crowd. And it figured prominently in these elections. And it will in elections coming up, too. And then, to show you what didn't get voted out of office, not completely anyway, our friend President Cadaver, he chose a person to help him with the election, you know, the LBGTQ crowd. His name is Dylan Mulvaney. <laughs> He's a transgender activist. And he posted on TikTok... This is during the campaign, by the way, several weeks ago, that men should dress as women to, quote, normalize women have bulges, unquote. I'll leave you with that thought. And off we go because we're out of time once again. And last but not least, very important, on the Take Action page, we've taken down all the elections that have been decided, but we do have huge multipliers for the upcoming Georgia runoff election, Herschel Walker. 22x, 34x, go there and throw some money at it, folks. You know, (laughs) you thought it was going to be over, but unfortunately, the Republicans didn't make it go away. But now, once again, it's up to us. Once more into the breach, my friend, we shall go. On the right side radio, take action button, center the homepage, click on it, send some huge multiplier money to the runoff election in Georgia. 
It could be key. I mean, really key. You have no idea, but we'll be talking about that next week. And given the mixed bag of these elections and what we know has transpired in these swing states, and which is still transpiring as they continue to find, uh, oh, we found some more mail-in ballots. Oh, we found a bag of ballots along the side of the road. That actually happened, by the way, in Detroit and in Milwaukee. All Republican, of course. Look in that mirror. Look with conviction and mean it when you say it. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. We'll talk at you next week. (laughs) We'll see where these elections kind of finally tumble down into their messy state. And in the meantime, you keep the wind at your back. And send money to the Georgia runoff. Very important.